Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 3 and we'll get started. Let's give attention to God's word. Hebrews 3, verses 7 through 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore to my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Hebrews, which shows us who you are more, more fully, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us pictures each week of, of who you are and how great your salvation, how great this message is that we've received. Thank you, Jesus, that our hope is secure and firm in you. If we have placed our trust in you, you will hold us secure to the end. And Father, at the same time, we want to be grateful and thank you for passages like this that challenge us that challenge us is to pursue you, to pursue you, to guard against unbelief, to stir each other up to love and good deeds, to encourage one another. Father, I pray that we would be spurred on this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us, but I pray that your Holy Spirit would encourage us, that your Holy Spirit would excite and enliven a desire to give all to live for you. God, I pray that you bless my words as I speak and, and bless the people as they listen this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When I was a kid, I used to play in this big field out behind my house. It went on seemingly forever as a kid. Now they've replaced it with several subdevelopments, like is often the case when you go back home. It's not, not the same. And I used to play in this huge field, and it was pretty far from our house at times, and we play there all day long in the summertime, and sometimes our play would spill over into the neighborhoods around us, and um, I didn't have a watch and really didn't believe in carrying a watch as a kid. I'm not sure if my parents wanted me to or not, but cell phones hadn't been invented yet. I know it sounds surprising to anybody who's under 20. There was no such thing as cell phones. Uh, I think the military had them, and they were large backpacks about that big, and, but that was about it. But we didn't really need a cell phone. We didn't, we didn't need technology because I had my dad. 
My dad had one of those voices. I don't know if any of you has a dad like that. He's got one of those voices that carries. He, he, could, he could call for me or probably more accurately bellow for me. And I, I swear he would he'd just cup his hands, and I won't do it now. I'll blow your eardrums if I do. But he'd cup his ears up, and he'd say, Mario! He'd yell from the back porch. And, and I could hear a mile away. No exaggeration. I mapped it out one time I was, when I got older. I'm like, I want to see how far away I heard my dad's voice before. And it was like a mile away. He was like, and I could hear him just yelling for me. And so he would do that in the summertime, and he'd call my name. And if I was anywhere in the neighborhood, outside, like I was supposed to be, I could hear his voice. So when my dad would call me, I had to pay attention. I had to respond. I, I, I had to come. And when I heard his voice, I, 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 I came to him. I came back home as fast as I could or else. Sometimes I'd pretend that I didn't hear him or I couldn't hear him. And that eventually he would nag me and I'd be like, you know what? I really better come home before I get in real trouble. I can only pretend for so long when his second and third bellow is ringing out across the neighborhood. And so I would come home and I would respond. I'd feel bad. I'd imagine the consequences. You know, I don't, I don't really ever remember not coming home when my dad called, but I knew that the consequences, I was just, I, I was convinced they would be way more severe than missing dinner with my family. So I always came. So, you know, the point of that is I, I was never not my dad's son. He called me. I was far away at times. I was never n- not his son. When he called, I came. But my coming to my dad and, and responding to his calling, responding to his voice, hearing his voice, believing it was him, knowing it was him, and then consciously choosing to believe that, putting my trust in that, obeying that, that didn't make me his son. It was, it was evidence of the fact that I was his son, and I better respond to my dad's call. It didn't, my response was just a sign that I believed he was my dad and that he meant business, and it was proof that I was his son. In our passage today, we, we have one of, one of the more sobering parts of Hebrews. Hebrews has three or four of these places where it's very sobering. Hebrews gives us a glimpse of who Jesus is and says how wonderful Jesus is, how wonderful salvation is, how wonderful the gospel is. And then in light of that, it warns us. But it doesn't warn us to condemn us. It warns us that we can be sure of our standing in him. We can be sure of that we're sons and daughters. You see, our response to God doesn't make us sons and daughters. But it is evidence that we are sons and daughters. And so these warning passages are meant to say, hey, let's make sure that there's evidence. Let's make sure in your lives, in all of our lives, that we're not ignoring God's voice, that we're responding to him, that, that subtly this heart of unbelief doesn't grow and it leads us to fall away. Let's make sure that we're truly in, in God's family, that we're truly part of God's house. The big idea of this passage this morning, the main point, the main idea is just hearing God's voice and sharing in Christ. It, it must be seen in our persevering. Hearing God's voice, sharing in Christ, it, it must be seen in our persevering belief. This passage is a clear call to persevere. But if you read it wrong, you might think that, well, I have to persevere so I make sure I'm a Christian. Well, that's not what it's saying. You see, this, this perseverance, it doesn't make us as children any more than a neighbor kid 
coming to my house would make that kid my parents' son. They'd probably look at him a little squirrely and say, what are you doing here? Unless I'd invited him. A stranger would not be allowed to come in for dinner, but, but I could. And I was expected to come, and I was expected to come freely because I was a son. So here in this passage, this call to persevere, it's not a call to become a son or daughter. Don't, don't read this wrongly. It's not a call to become a son or daughter. What it's saying is you've already become if you persevere. Perseverance is an evidence that he is indeed our father, that Christ is our brother, as we heard a couple weeks ago. And we can see that we are truly built into him if we continue to hold fast our confidence firm to the end. And, and there, the first thing that we can see in this passage, the first thing that this author draws our attention to is, is don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts like the Israelites. That's our first point this morning. And he's driving this point home. Because in light of the great salvation that we have, we can't ignore it. We can't take it for granted. And he's wanting to remind us He's wanting to remind the Hebrews, he's wanting to remind us, the Holy Spirit speaking to each of us today and saying, we have a great salvation, a great message, you can hope in him, our hope is secure. Last week we heard from Aaron that we have a faithful, faithful apostle, prophet, high priest, he is our builder, he's built us, we're part of his house. Now it's saying, don't take that for granted, and by the way, make sure you're part of his house. Don't harden your hearts like the Israelites. And there's two sections here that are, that are linked. See, the author is repeating it. And so verses 7 through 11, if you look down there, the, he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then down in verse 15 to 18, he repeats that same entreaty. And, and, he, and he is encouraging us to not harden our hearts in these two sections of this passage. And but as he opens this passage, he's pointing back to something. Remember, Aaron reminded us last week that the therefore has a reason for being in that text. So therefore, it's really pointing back to verse 6 of, of Hebrews 3 from last week that we heard. That our confidence is in Jesus as our builder. If, if, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So what he's saying is our confidence is in Jesus as our builder, but there's a big if here. And because of that, because of that big if, it helps, he helps helping us explain what it looks like to hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. What the author is not saying is that the way we are his house, the way that we are in him and share in Christ is through holding fast our confidence, right? He's not saying that we're in his house by holding fast confidence and boasting and hope. What he's saying is that make sure you're in his house and you'll see that if you're holding fast. If you're holding fast. Therefore, it says, as the Holy Spirit says. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit is speaking to us today. Speaking to the Hebrews then, speaking to us now. And what, what the author and what the Holy Spirit ultimately is saying is that holding on to him in confidence, boasting in our hope, hoping, holding on, hanging on to, Holding it firm to the end. That's how we know that we've really been built into the household of God. And that we really do share in Jesus Christ. 
It's not the grounds for salvation, but it is the means of grace that we can have assurance and know that we're really part of his household. So what these verses are saying is that we really are of the household of faith if we persevere. If we persevere. What it's not saying is that you have to believe perfectly. What it's not saying is that you don't have any doubts. What it's not saying is that you don't wrestle. You see, even the man who brought his son to be healed to Jesus, and he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You see, he was striving to believe, but he knew he was struggling with unbelief, and so he went to the Savior saying, help my unbelief. What this, is, this passage is telling us is we need to strive. We need to press in. We need to pursue Jesus to help us where we're tempted to unbelief, but don't fall into unbelief. We'll have doubts from time to time because our minds are, are weak, they're feeble, and we can only comprehend so much of God. See, God is infinite and great. We're very finite. So you're going to encounter doubts in the Christian walk. What he's saying is don't give in to them. Wrestle with them. Go to Scripture. Go to Jesus. Ask him to help you. But don't give in to unbelief because if you give in to unbelief, there's this slide that's going to happen. You give in to unbelief, you're going to pull back from him. You're going you're to walk in disobedience. And by the way, if you have a pattern of giving in to unbelief, there's a very real warning here. Make sure that you're in God's household. The author of Hebrews in this passage, he's quoting Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11 in these verses. And he's making some connections that we need to make today as well. Often when we read the New Testament, if you ever look down your Bible and you see those little notes and it has some scriptures and footnotes, in this case, it's a direct quote from Psalm 95. It's quoting from the Septuagint, so a couple of the words are different. But he begins by making the connection that this is the same Holy Spirit who's inspired these words, that he inspired Psalm 95, inspiring Hebrews, the same Holy Spirit. By the way, as he's speaking to you through his word this morning, the same Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament. Active in the early church. Holy Spirit's active in our church and in your life today as well. The Holy Spirit, he, he spoke not only to the author of Psalms in that day in Hebrews, he's speaking to us today. That's why, if you notice, he puts it in present tense. He says, therefore, today. That's a continual today. It's an ongoing today. As long as it's called today, so let me ask you, when is it not called today? Obviously, what he's saying is, it's always going to be called today. And so if it's always called today, every morning you wake up, that's today. <laughs> as long as it's called today, don't harden your hearts. As long as it's called today, guard against hard, hardening your hearts. These words were written to our today. They're written to help us day by day persevere. They're written to help us press on in faith, to hold on to the hope that we first received. Before we go further, it's, it's important to know that the author, as he's quoting Psalm 95, it begins with a warm call to delight in God. And we're going to look at the first few verses of Psalm 95. Verses 7 through 11, he's saying, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into the presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountain are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. 
for he's our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And then, we have some nice ambient music here. Uh, <laughs> if I can get Jim to go to the, uh, thank you, Jim. <laughs> For those listening on audio, we have some great background music from uh, courtesy of the Hilton. So, um, <laughs> I'll pause for a moment. <laughs> it's like a little intermission. If you ever go to a theater, right? You know, it's a little intermission. The music plays. You kind of get up, you stretch. Kind of keeps you awake a little bit here. So, um, <laughs> getting louder even. That's great. <laughs> Thank you, Pete. Notice it's similar encouragement as the author of Hebrews has just given us in the first six verses of chapter three. The author of Hebrews is encouraging us with how great Jesus is. He's more faithful than Moses. He's a better prophet. He's a better priest. He's a better king. He's better in every way. Psalms is telling us some similar things about God. He's your maker. He's great. We're the sheep of his pasture. Let's bow down to him. And then Psalms shifts immediately, as does Hebrews. He picks up the same, the same warning. Immediately goes, he's our God. We're the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In light of the great message we've received, we have a great responsibility to make sure we've truly not only receive the message, but are responding in faith and that we hold on to that faith. We have a great responsibility because of the greatness of the gospel, because of the greatness of who Jesus is, we have an even greater responsibility to watch our lives closely, to guard our hearts, to guard against unbelief. Something to be learned from the example of the Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews picks up on this and says in verse 14, we have come to share in Christ if, there's that word again, if, Verses 6 and verses 14 are linking there. If indeed we hold firmly to the end of our original conviction. You see, the Psalms, they frequently, if you ever read through the book of Psalms, they're frequently citing the, the Old Testament, um, the first five books of the Old Testament, the people of Israel, they're, they're frequently citing them as examples. But often it's, it's not a good example. One of the things that we consistently see is a pattern throughout the first five books really is just, God calls his people, and then they fall away. And then he calls his people, and he receives them back, and they fall into unbelief and various sins and disobedience. And you see this cyclical pattern throughout the Old Testament, and it's pointing to the fact that we need a redeemer. We need somebody to rescue us, to truly save us. We need, we need someone to really make it so that we're not in bondage to our sins anymore, so we're not captive to them. And it becomes plain as you're reading through the Old Testament that there is lights in the wilderness. They did not hold firm to the original convictions. They didn't hold firm to those convictions steadfast to the end, did they? They died in the wilderness is what our passage tells us. They began great, didn't they? They burst out of Egypt. They were awesome. They were all going out together, the Red Sea parts, that, some glorious times. And very shortly after that, they began to grumble and disobey and put God to the test. And you can see, you look down your Bible for a minute, in verses 8 and 9, it says, Don't harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, a day of testing in the wilderness. Those, those words, rebellion, testing, it's, in Psalms, is Meribah and Masa. It, it means testing and rebelling or quarreling. In, in Exodus 17, 7, you don't have to turn there, but um, Moses, it says, He called the name of the place Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means 
rebelling or quarreling. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because, get this, because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? They've just seen remarkable feats. They've just beheld some of the most amazing miracles in the Old Testament. And they say, well, is, is the Lord really among us? You see, they, they were refusing to believe that what God had done was good enough. They were refusing to believe they could trust in God. They were choosing to turn away from trusting in God. They put God to the test. They said, is God really among us or not? If you recall, they didn't get to this place in a non-spectacular way, right? They got here in a pretty, pretty spectacular way. The Israelites, they've been brought out and saved from the Egyptians. They've been brought out of slavery. They've seen them, the mighty works of God. Remember, God directed the Pharaoh's heart, the most mighty and powerful ruler in that day. And he directs Pharaoh's heart to release them and let them go. And he forms all kinds of signs. The Israelites ate lamb in the safety of their houses as they heard the screams of the Egyptians around them whose firstborn children were being killed through the pinpoint accuracy of the purposeful hand of God's wrath. Their neighbors gave them so much loot that they plundered the Egyptians as they left. They got to the Red Sea, they panicked, and yet there was this pillar of fire that kept the Egyptian army at bay. Can you imagine seeing all these things happening? It would blow your mind, seeing the ten, the ten plagues, seeing all that. Getting to the sea and thinking, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? We're going to die. There's the most mighty army in the entire world coming after us. We're unarmed. And yet then you see this pillar of fire coming down and separating the entire army from you, protecting you. And then this dude Moses who's leading you, you don't really know him so well yet, but he has this staff that God gave him and he seems to speak for God. And he raises the staff and the Red Sea parts. Would that blow your mind? You think you'd remember that? You think they had that picture in your mind? I can't believe it. Let me tell you what I saw. You're not going to get this. Like all those plagues and everything. Maybe we could explain some of those, maybe through science stuff for the pinpoint thing of killing just the firstborn son and some other stuff. But, but all this crazy stuff. And then the whole sea just stands up in pillars and, and like we walk through it on dry land. That's nuts. You'd think you wouldn't have trouble believing. But people saw the miracles of Jesus. They saw Lazarus raised from the dead. They saw everyone who came to Jesus was healed. And they still didn't believe. Actually, at the tomb of Lazarus, he weeps. And he doesn't weep just because he's sad for Lazarus. Primarily, he's weeping because of the unbelief of people. They still don't get that he's God, that he can raise people from the dead. So the Israelites, they're complaining right after this. They didn't have food so God creates a whole new food group. <laughs> God creates a whole new food source. It perfectly met their physical needs. And it says it tasted sweet like wafers made with honey. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but it sounds pretty good. I like, I like wafers, not those communion things that have no taste. I don't like those things. But wafers made with the honey, I like. I like honey. I like crackers. You know. So somehow it looks like these little coriander seeds that look like pearls, and they gather them up, and they, they taste sweet like honey, and they can bake with them and do all kinds of stuff. And God, God provides all that they need nutritiously through one food source. It's pretty, pretty impressive because 
It's not normal that you can just eat one thing and be healthy. And yet God created something that sustained them in every way they needed to be sustained. But then, right after this, God's people get thirsty. And instead of looking to him in hope and saying, God, we believe you even when we don't see, we don't see there's water around us. We know that you'll provide for us because you've done all this other stuff. You provide for us in any other way. You've, you rescued us. You saved us. You've taken out of bondage. You've given us food. You've given us all that we need. You protected us with a pillar of fire and a cloud by day. And we have everything. What's a little water? But they didn't say that. You see, they complained at Massa and Meribah. They got thirsty. They completely forgot all these things so quickly. And so Moses strikes the rock and a stream of water flows and it quenches the thirst for probably close to a million people. So it's probably a decent-sized stream. But it didn't stop there. The people, they continued to disobey. They saw God deliver them later through their, from their adversaries. And later, the presence of God descends on the mountain, right? When Moses is going up for the, to get the, the tablets from, from God. And they didn't really believe that, that God would bring them into the promised land. They weren't really sure if Moses could be trusted to come back or not. So they had Aaron create an idol, of a golden calf. No wonder God was frustrated. The Psalms is warning us, though, as a Christian. See, what Hebrews is saying is this, these words in Psalms, they apply to us. They apply to us as well. And, and he wants to warn us against a hardened attitude of disobedience, of, a fixed attitude of disobedience that refuses to believe in what God says. This isn't garden variety doubts. This, this isn't wavering that we face from time to time because we're weak and we're finite, right? This is a hardening of your heart. This is a description of a stubborn, an obstinate refusal to believe the truth, refusing to do God's will. It's consistent and stubborn refusal to trust God. You've seen everything. You know it's true, but you're saying, I can't really believe that God's truly a good God. He's just some mean dad. That's the kind of stubborn unbelief that we see here. And so then look down in verse 10 for a moment, please. He says, For 40 years, therefore, I was provoked with that generation, said so they always go astray in their heart. They've not known my ways. God was patient with them for 40 years. They saw God's work. They saw God's faithfulness. They refused still to hold on to their hope in him when adversity and trials came. And we're tempted that way too, aren't we? When adversity comes, when trials come, when difficulties in life come, we're tempted to give up. We're tempted to say, is God really among us? And he's saying, no, don't do that. You might not see it. You might understand it. You might not see how God's going to intervene. You might not understand how he's using these circumstances. The Israelites didn't understand how in the world can this wilderness experience be any good for us at all. And yet they had enough to believe. And more than enough to believe. And so do we. That God really is good. He does know what he's doing. We really can't trust him. Even in the middle of the desert when we cannot figure it out. We're not sure. How can the desert be good? But we know that God's greater. And we're going to choose to place our hope and our belief in that. They didn't hold the original convictions firm to the end. He says they won't enter my rest in verse 11. Because of their unbelief and their choosing to not know God. Despite his words and actions. God says they will not enter my rest. Now skip down to verse 15 if you will. He repeats the warning again. And then you're going to see in, in verses 16 to 18, he raises three sets of questions. Notice he's raising three sets of rhetorical questions. And what they're meant to do is to reiterate his point of who the Israelites were that were not to follow the example of. 
So he says, who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? So the answer is these weren't pagans. This passage then and this passage for us now today, it's not directed to pagans. These were people who Moses led out of Egypt who heard the word of God, who saw his miracles and yet rebelled. These weren't Pharaoh's army that he was talking about. It was God's chosen people. Think of the implications of that. He had delivered them out of slavery, but yet they had not yet gone into his place of rest, the promised land. They came out of slavery and God delivered them out of bondage. They got to see and know and experience God, but yet they had not yet trusted and rested in God. And so God was not bringing them into the promised land because of their unbelief. If the people who had seen these great miracles of God firsthand, if they fell away. And by the way, although the text doesn't mention the people in Jesus' day, they saw great miracles too. And yet both refused to believe in him. So if those groups were caught in unbelief, surely the readers of Hebrews ought to take notice and not think they're above these things. Surely we need to take notice and not think we're somehow above these things. Not become complacent, not become okay and settled in the Christian life. You see, the reason why we talk about our mission as a church is to be disciples. Our entire identity is around that. And, and out of that identity of disciples flows growing and then making disciples. The reason why we talk about those things is because we want Jesus to be our all. We want to be about passionate about Jesus in every way. We don't want to be complacent in our Christian walk. We don't want to be complacent with the great message that we have. You see, if you're a Christian and you're just comfortable being a Christian, you really need to pay attention to this warning. See, Christianity is not meant to be a comfortable lifestyle. We're called to respond to him, to be careful, to guard against it, to encourage one another. People whom God was provoked with were the same people who saw what he did for 40 years and then they fell away in the wilderness. You know, in, in verse 18, it says, To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Ever since the Garden of Eden, God designed the world and made it so that he desired for us to enter into his place of rest. Remember the seventh day, it says, he rested from his works. The intent that he had was that man would trust in God's finished work from the very beginning, even before we have Christ on the scene. He desired that man would trust in his finished work. We would rest in that. We would trust in him alone. Adam blew it, though. We know the story. God cursed the work of man, so it became meaningless and hard. God called his people, though, later here out of Egypt so he could, they could enter into his rest. He was desiring to bring them into his promised land, into a, a land flowing with milk and honey, into a land where they would rest from their slavery, into a land where they would rest from wars and their enemies, where God would protect them and care for them and keep them. And he promised to do that. But because of their unbelief, they couldn't enter in. And then after that, the ones who did enter in never fully experienced God's God's rest and his, his promises because they, they didn't fully trust in him. He desires for you and I to enter into his rest. We're going to talk about that more next week. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time there. So 
He's desiring us not to rest from work, but to rest from freedom, rest, from, rest in freedom from bondage, to rest from meaningless toil and hardship. So the author, he's driving a second major point, and the point he wants the reader to get is this, really. It's the second point is true believers hold their confidence firm to the end. True believers hold their confidence firm to the end. Look in verse 14. It says, For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It's clear, what he's saying is, it's clear that we already have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end our original conviction of the truth of the gospel. Not holding, not holding to one's assurance doesn't make you lose your salvation but it does demonstrate that that person was not truly saved to begin with. It's a pretty hard word, isn't it? It's not meant to discourage. It's meant to say, Jesus, let me, let me be found in you. I want to place my hope, my faith, my confidence in you alone. And I want to help each other. I want to help one another. I want to help my brothers and sisters here have our hold fast to you because you are our confidence. You are our builder. You can keep us firm to the end. Hebrews 13, 21, I think I have it up there for you. It says, earlier saying, Now may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What he's saying is that God's going to enable you to stay firm to the end. He's going to give you everything you need to do. He's going to work in you everything you need to do to be pleasing in his sight. You don't have to be concerned, but hold firm. The way we experience, you see, the way we experience the power of God through Jesus to make us persevere, to work this persevering grace in in us, it's, it's actually through warnings like this. Warnings like this are a means of God's grace to help us continue to persevere And that's how he's working in us. God doesn't work in us endurance apart from the word. You see, he he works by the word. Our great salvation, our great savior. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is about, right? They're the inspiration the spirit uses to hold us fast. So we have to consider Jesus in verse 3.1. We have not neglect our great salvation. We saw in, in chapter 2, verse 3. That's what this book is written to help us to do. And this, the, He wants the reader to understand if true believers hold their confidence firm to the end, they do it in a couple of ways. True believers hold their confidence firm to the end, and they do it in a couple of ways. One of the first ways that we do it is by guarding against unbelief. He says, take care, brothers. What he's saying is guard, be on guard, take care. Take care, look, take heed. And he's calling them brothers because they're in the church. They've received the good news of the gospel. They've responded at least externally. But he warns them to take care lest there be in you any evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The the Israelites had begun to doubt God. They entertained those doubts to the point that they didn't believe they were striving. They didn't believe and they weren't striving to believe either. It's so easy to fall out of trusting God. And the Holy Spirit's warning them and us that we need to take care and make sure that we're watching our belief. Cultivating it. Thinking about it. Trusting in God. Pursuing trusting in God. Even amidst doubts and temptations to unbelief. So where are you today? Are you pursuing that kind of belief? 
Are you thinking about it? Are you pursuing, continually pursuing it? Are you reminding yourself, even if I feel like I trust in God, I'm going to make sure I'm continuing to trust in God because I need to because it's so easy to forget when troubles come. Don't get comfortable. Maybe you find yourself in a place of doubts this morning. It's normal, but wrestle with those doubts. Strive to believe in God even when you don't understand. Strive to trust in God. Don't trust in your own ability to figure things out. Don't get comfortable with unbelief. Don't think you can stay in unbelief and it won't have serious consequences. That's what he's saying. Eventually, an unbelieving heart, a heart that is core, says, I can't trust in God really. I'm not, I'm not really going to build my life on him. I'm not fully staking my life on it because I'm not sure I can really fully depend upon him. I need somebody. I need something else. This kind of heart, it says, leads somebody to fall away from the living God. That's the normal progression of things in our relationships, isn't it? When there's a breakdown of trust, when we just trust somebody, it makes us withdraw from them. Distrust, it never leads to closer relationships with somebody. If you distrust your spouse, it's not going to lead you to have this great, warm relationship with your spouse. If you distrust your children, it's going to make it hard on both of you. If there's distrust in your business relationships, you're either going to stop doing business with them or not do business with them at all. If you don't trust your leadership, no matter what form that takes, you're going to withdraw. You're going to fall away from them. You're not going to place your confidence in them. This isn't a new thought, though. This concept of falling away, of tasting the goodness of God. Tasting of the same spiritual food. Drinking from the same spiritual rock. Being protected by God. Being brought out of slavery. Being brought out of bondage. But not yet into the promised land. Not in a place of full rest and trust in Him. And so Jesus told us parables. Jesus told the parable of the sower. And the different kinds of soils, right? My, my kids have this, this parable memorized. Most of us have learned that parable from, from a young age if you've been in children's ministry like the ones back there. Um, I think those are screams of joy, by the way. <laughs> Make a joyful noise. They're responding to psalms, the encouragement at the beginning. You know, let's lift up our voices. <laughs> um, Jesus told the parable of the soils, and he says, some seed, it falls on rocky soil. <laughs> it's probably my kid. Um, some seed fell on rocky soil. And, and this is this, this rocky soil in Israel. If, if any of you have been to Israel before or not, but <laughs> told you it was probably my kid. I, you know. um, <laughs> so I was listening. That was, my wife is walking out right now. So. Um, this, this rocky sto- soil in Palestine, it, it doesn't appear to be rocky at first because um, there's this nice topsoil. But this topsoil is sitting on a layer of bedrock. And so what happens in the springtime when, when you go out to sow, and w- when the sower goes out to sow the seed, in the springtime he sows the seed and it looks like it falls on, on decent ground. And, and, it, and it takes root in this topsoil and the spring rains come down. And that soil is actually warmer and more fertile to begin with because it's warm and it holds the moisture better. So the moisture sits up on top of the rock and it's warm because the, the, the sun heats up the rock beneath it and the rock holds that. And so it looks like it's really good soil at first because this, this seed, it sprouts up really quickly. 
And the, and the plant springs up, and it looks like it's a great plant to all who go by it. But as soon as the sun, the circumstances in life, troubles, trials, temptations, as soon as the sun beats down and heats up that ground, well, now the rock becomes unbearably hot. And that, that moisture goes away, it dissolves. And then those roots are not really grounded, they're shallow. They weren't really on the soil beneath the surface. It was, it was hard and the roots weren't being nourished because they weren't in the soil. They look good. They gave all the appearances of being healthy at first. The roots weren't really grounded. And Jesus says these are the ones who immediately receive the word of joy, but afterwards when trial or persecution comes, there's nothing there. This parable is meant to draw attention to the fact that there is such a thing as a superficial conversion. How do you know if you've really become partakers of Jesus, it's saying? If you're really part of God's household, you will know if you are holding firm. Even when you waver, if you're holding firm, your original conviction to the end. That affects the way we view conversion, doesn't it? We can't have an overly simplistic view of conversion. I think there's a temptation, especially in the culture here that we live in. Becoming a Christian is not just about praying a prayer or walking the aisle when you're seven. If that's what we're basing our hope on, then it's a flimsy, thin soil. Jesus later told his disciples, he says, you'll know a tree by its fruit. What he's saying is if we don't bear fruit... We're not in him. Fruit doesn't cause us to be in him, but fruit will be seen if we are in him. Please don't confuse the two. The fact that it is a good tree is proven by the good fruit it bears. First John chapter 2, 18 and 19, Jesus is explaining that, uh, through John that those who have went out from them in the church, they really weren't of them. They weren't really saved because if they had been, They would have continued, but they went out so it would be plain their conversion wasn't genuine. So they appeared to be part of the church. Hebrews, he knows that he's he's writing to people who appear to be part of the church, but aren't really. And he doesn't want that to be the case. And this morning, this isn't meant to be a condemning message, saying it doesn't need to be the case. It can be different. God doesn't want to just bring you out of bondage and bring you close to his word, close to his people, close to all the benefits close to all the privileges. He doesn't want you to just taste. He wants you to eat. He wants you to rest, to trust in him. He wants you to bring you into a place of partaking of Jesus. Colossians 1, 21 to 23. I don't have time to read it, but he says that we've, we were once alienated, but now we've, we've been reconciled if indeed we continue in the faith. If you are a child of God, you can't cease to be a child of God. But we all know there's a lot of people who appear to be Christians, and then later they fall away and forsake God. This passage helps us put that into perspective. It's exactly the kind of person the author has in mind, so he addresses them and he addresses us. Make sure you know what kind of person you really are. Don't want to cause undue doubt. Don't want to cause undue concerns. But I do want us to say, you know what? Maybe, I, maybe I, I am in God's house, but I, I realize I've not been taking, taking the great message seriously. 
I've not, been, I've not been placing my full confidence and hope. I've not been seeing Jesus as my full treasure. Let me encourage you. See Jesus as your treasure. See Jesus as your great reward. See him as the only thing worth living for. Saying that, you know what, no matter what happens, I'm going to die hoping in Christ because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Numbers 11, 4 to 6. <laughs> Again, people of Israel complaining. They had strong cravings, it says. The people of Israel, it says, also wept again and said, Oh, that we have... And this is not a repentant weeping, by the way. This is self-pity weeping. Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up. And they really, our strength was dried up. And there's nothing at all but this manna, God's perfect provision, to look at. They were looking back at their previous lifestyle longingly, just like the people in Hebrews were tempted to do, just like we're tempted to do. We're tempted to look back longingly at our previous lifestyle. Taking for granted what we have. They wanted to eat meat and fruits and vegetables and spices, and they were taking for granted the amazing provision of God. They said, here's the, here's the worst thing. They said, it didn't cost us anything in Egypt. Really? It cost you nothing. Just the complete bondage and slavery of your whole family and household for 400 years. It costs nothing. We can be tempted to turn back and think that it has no cost. There's a cost. You see, they tasted the power and the goodness and the benefits of God. They've been enlightened with God's revelation in an unprecedented way. More than any other people on earth, God has showed himself to them, made a way for them to know him. They saw signs and wonders, and yet they became hard of heart and stopped believing in God. The author of Hebrews is saying, it's possible to taste the power of the age to come. It's possible to be part of even a loving people like this body. And join a church and catch a glimpse of the gospel and be baptized and take communion and listen to preaching and teaching and do remarkable things, but not be a part of the people of God. Remember, Jesus frequently warned us about this. He taught us about the danger of false assurance in Matthew seven twenty one. He says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name. And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. How is the scripture meant to function? It's not meant to cause doubt and unbelief where there's real faith. What it's meant to do is say, oh, oh, you want to know Jesus. If you're not sure, great, you can know Jesus. But don't be comfortable with not being sure. Make sure. Make sure. Now, it's not your making sure does not make you a Christian, but it's evidence. It's evidence. The evidence of Jesus knowing us is if Jesus is our confidence. Is Jesus your confidence this morning? If Jesus is our hope, our love, our dearest treasure, and are we holding on to him firmly? The author is, is, is clear. It's written to Christians, and, and it's clear they'll remain 
because Jesus is their builder and he is faithful, he's still calling them to make sure to hold on to their confidence. It's not isolated. Remember in, in Peter, 2 Peter 1.10, it says, Be diligent to confirm your election and calling. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul says, Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. You can't be complacent. You can't be cavalier in your faith. True believers will persevere. So the question is, do you love Jesus? Do you want to love him? I'm not saying perfectly. All of us have an imperfect love. Do you want to love Jesus more? That's the effect of the scripture. It's, going to make, it's meant to make you want to love Jesus and believe and trust and rest in him more. Do you want Jesus to be your dearest treasure? Do you desire to place your hope in Jesus fully? Do you look forward to seeing Jesus one day? Or are you self-assured and don't feel like you need to have any evidence? Do you think you can play church this morning and look the part, act the part, talk the part, and just live how you want to secretly? Do you think you'll be just fine if you coast and don't believe and pursue and love Jesus? If so, if this is you, if you find yourself being okay with being comfortable with not loving Jesus passionately. If it doesn't bother you, I want you to feel insecure of your salvation. More importantly, Scripture's calling us to. Being born again, it's not a vaccine. You can't just get inoculated from hell and live as you want and ignore your heart and functionally fall into unbelief. If you're living this way, you're in danger. And it says we have to take care, guard against unbelief. Be vigilant. Maintain our confidence. And then verse 13 tells us, tells us really the means, the second means, not only guarding, but the second means that we make sure that we don't fall into unbelief is by daily encouraging one another to believe in Christ. You see, sin's deceitful, it says, and, and our desires, though, are going to lead us astray, and we're going to crave things like the people of Israel craved and are idolatrous, and, and can subtly and quickly get led astray. You don't even realize it. I can become materialistic in my thinking, and I don't even know that I'm, I'm going that way. I can crave things. I can look for fulfillment in things I was never meant to find fulfillment in. No matter what season of life, you can do that. Whether you're youth, or singles, or married, whatever. You can subtly look to, if only this. If only this changes, if only circumstances change, if only my season changes, if only it looks different, you can have these cravings and they'll lead us astray. And what he's saying is, no, we need each other because that's deceitful. We don't even see that we're doing that. And we need to encourage one another. What's the application for us, really? For all of us? Encourage, exhort one another. And and he, and he gives us some time periods. Well, when do you exhort one another? Today. Okay, so all of you, today, you're being called to exhort and encourage one another, right? And then he says, well, how, how long are you called to exhort and encourage each other? As long as it's called today. <laughs> so do it today, and as long as it's called today. Today, and as long as it's called today, encourage. Encourage so that you might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We're being called to be active members of the body of Christ. We're called to actively help each other fight the good fight of faith. To lock arms with our brothers and sisters. We're in a battle. 
Don't pull away from the front lines of the battle and leave your brothers and sisters open to unbelief. Pick up the shield of faith and say, I'm standing here with you, and I'm going to help you. And by the way, yours is drooping. Pick it up. We're called to be active members, speaking the truth in love to each other, proclaiming God's goodness to each other. How can we apply this passage? If, you're, if you are in him, proclaim God's love to each other. Remind, remind each other of the goodness and mercy of God. Remind each other of the greatness of God. Help one another combat unbelief. Because it's a battle we have to combat Show each other why Jesus is more worthy of our trust and faith than anything else. Why Jesus is better than whatever solution you're looking for right now. Why Jesus is better than any change of circumstance you're hoping for. Why Jesus is better than any season you may long for. Why Jesus is better than any relationship or finances. We need to point each other to that remind, exhort and encourage, and that's how we guard against an evil, unbelieving heart and prevent our hearts from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In the last minute, really, the author is closing out his warning in verse 19. Look down for a minute. He says, so we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The third point, and just as we close, unbelief, it has serious consequences. They weren't able to enter because of unbelief. The last lines or that all the people of Israel left Egypt and were over 20. They died. They didn't enter the promised land because of their unbelief. The entire generation of leadership, except for Joshua and Caleb, because they held fast to their confidence in God, firm to the end, except for them, if they all died. If you're pretending this morning and you aren't really interested in the things of Jesus... God's word, if not interested in prayer or worship or living for him, please listen today to the Holy Spirit. Please hear his voice. Don't harden your heart. Wake up to the deceitfulness of sin. Look to Jesus as the apostle and high priest of your confession. Hold fast to your confidence in Jesus. And if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, you can See, taste and see how good he is. Place your faith in him. And if you are a Christian, let me encourage you. Stir each other up to not be complacent. To not be okay living this American dream, which is no dream at all. (laughs) It's a fog that deceives us into thinking that we're living for the here and now. We're living for wealth or possessions or whatever it is. We're to live only with our hope in him and let's encourage one another while it's still called today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your good word. Thank you for your good word. Thank you for even hard words like this that shake us up, that wake us up out of sleep. And slumber because you want us to be alive in you. You want us to be alert and ready for your return. You want us to be living in light of your, your return. You want us to be living with you as our greatest treasure and reward. You want us to be placing our hope in you in the midst of trials and circumstances. So, God, I pray for any of us who are wrestling with doubt and unbelief. Help our unbelief.
God, we believe. Help our unbelief. God, for any who don't know you, bring them to a place of repentance and faith in you. For Christians who are complacent, wake us all up. May we be a church that's known for encouraging each other in the faith, for building each other up to live with you as our all, to hold fast our confidence, not in ourselves, not in our methodology, not in our practices, not in the group of churches that we belong to, not in leadership. Lord, let's hold our confidence firm in Jesus, who will build us, we pray. Amen. Well, um, you may be dismissed. Um, If you are visiting with us, um, we are meeting back at the Marriott. It's off the Parkway East, off of Pelham Road. Uh, For everybody else, we will see you there next weekend. Um, May God bless you as you go and pick up your kids. Um, And go and ask the uh, children's workers how your kids did this morning. And so you can help help your, your kids grow too. Well, be blessed.